Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles in front of you, and it's going to be on page 45 of those Black Pew Bibles. And if you are willing and able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're taking chapter 2, verse 11, to the end of this chapter. Listen to God's Word. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to the daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. I wonder if you've ever had that moment in your life when things kept feeling kind of pointless for you. Uh, You might be busy. Maybe you're at school, or you're at work, or you're at home. But everything seems like a big waste of time. As if things aren't maximally efficient. Uh, You go to school, and you're biking there, and you're halfway through, your bike breaks down. You graduate university and realize that life is not like the commencement speech that you heard. You've waited and waited, but that job offer never comes. You've waited and waited, but that pregnancy test doesn't turn positive. Perhaps this sense of pointlessness is made even more acute by trials you endure, sufferings you face, 
reversals in relationships, hindrances in health. You may even say, God, if you're there, what are you doing? And in many ways, this is what we see in our passage this morning, because if you were just to read it over very quickly, you would say, this is simply a chronicle of wasted time. You see, Exodus is this great story of divine deliverance, but it often didn't look that way. For centuries, the stage of God's providence was dark and it was empty with nothing going on. And for 400 years, the Israelites suffered as slaves. And it seemed for all the world that if there even was a God, he was not paying attention. But behind the scenes, God was at work. God is at work in spite of the struggles Moses was going through, in spite of the struggles Israel was going through. And our ever-faithful God is at work in our lives in spite of the trials we may go through in times when the stage seems dark and the stage seems, everything seems pointless and quiet and bare. The passage reminds us that God does not slumber and God does not sleep. I wonder if some of you are here this morning and you're wondering, why am I even here? (laughs) Is it a waste of time for me to be even here right now? But God's plan is at work right now for you. And so this morning we return in our exposition through Exodus. We see three ways God works through our trials. And specifically, he reveals, he refines, and he remembers. So let's take that first one. First, we see that God reveals us through our trials. You'll recall from previous weeks that Israel has been under the thumb of oppression. And they've been harassed and harangued, and they've been subject to the genocidal policy of Pharaoh. But Moses manages to escape rather than aborted in the Nile. He is adopted by a princess. Raised by his own mother for probably three or four years of his life, he entered into the Egyptian royal family. Educated at the highest levels in art and writing and military maneuvers, he enjoyed the finer things in life. He was a prince in the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And between verse 10 and 11, what we learn from the books of Acts, the book of Acts, is that 40 years have passed. And so when we read right here one day when Moses had grown up, oh yes, he's grown now. He's a grown man now. He's 40 years old. He kind of has his own smell to him, you know? And in verse 11, you see where things start to go wrong, or at least seem to for Moses. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his, to look at this, his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses desired to see what was going on with his people, his Hebrew people. He knows he's adopted. Perhaps he visited his mother, his birth mother, or perhaps his adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, would tell him why he looks different from the rest of the Egyptians. And it's striking that in this, in, the, in verse 11, he says, his people, twice. 
In other words, Moses identifies with them and knows their kin. He, he, he sees their burdens and has a connection with them. These are not just slaves being oppressed over there, but these are my people. I'm one of them. And on this day, his heart stirs. He sees the weak, and he sees the downtrodden. That word looked in verse 11 has this idea of looking with emotion or with grief or with distress. Perhaps often he had witnessed his own people at their slave labor, but this time something was different. Perhaps that long smoldering fire of of resentment was kindled into this white hot rage as he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and Moses takes action. And what does he do? He murders him. Some have tried to defend Moses. You know, Calvin tries to defend Moses. He says, oh, he was armed by God's command, conscious of his legitimate vocation. He rightly and judiciously assumed that character which God had assigned to him. But was this a justified act in defending someone in mortal danger? I mean, you see somebody with their knee pressed on someone's neck does that give you a right to kill the oppressor? I don't think so. This was not an act of self-defense. The text says he looked this way and that, and I don't think that means he's searching for help. I think this was premeditated. He's a prince of Egypt. He could have used his authority and said, hey, I'm the prince of Egypt. You better stop what you're doing right now. He could have used his authority, but instead he abuses his authority and he kills him. Buries, in the, buries him in the sand, showing that what he did was he did surreptitiously. He did, secret, he did it in secret. He tries to dispose of the evidence. So Moses' actions are actually more violent than the Egyptians. The Egyptian wounds and bruises and Moses kills. So here we see a picture of his unrestrained impulsiveness that Moses possesses. Now, on, that, on day two, in verse 13, Moses goes out again. He sees his Hebrew brothers kind of get into a squabble. And he says, why do you strike your companion? Uh, Moses, again, he has this heart of compassion for his people. He tries to settle this dispute. And he says, hey, man, we're supposed to be brothers. And the response was essentially, who are you, Mr. Johnny come lately? Who do you think you are? You think you're the Jewish Batman or something? You're going to kill me like you killed that guy yesterday? You see, the Israelites didn't want to go from one murderous pharaoh to another murderous prince. Somehow the word had spread. Perhaps the person Moses rescued went around town telling others. Perhaps he was fearful because an Egyptian official was now missing and said, whoa, 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 it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Like it was, some, it was one of your own people. However it happened, word spread, and Pharaoh got wind of it, and Moses fled. He's a criminal in exile and is forced to hide out in Midian. And these Midianites were actually descendants from Abraham by his second wife, Keturah. Uh, They were a semi-nomadic tribe in Sinai and were primarily herdsmen. They cared for sheep. So Moses goes from this cultured, urban, Egyptian in a royal household to living among shepherds in the rural backwaters of Midian. But the focus I want us to see in these early verses is how God reveals us 
through trials. Through this incredibly difficult situation, we get an understanding of who Moses is, don't we? Uh, Mike Tyson, uh, a boxer, boxer Mike Tyson, famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. In other words, trials have a way of bringing out character. And what do we learn about Moses? (laughs) Interestingly, we learn that he is a man of faith. I mean, he comes into this great crisis in his life. Do you see that? He, He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and in that moment, he has to make a decision about who he is. You can imagine his palms are sweaty. All the questions of who am I? Who is my God? Who are my people? Where is, where's my allegiance? Where are my values? Whose side am I on? All that comes bubbling to the surface at that moment. And Moses, who's probably raised in the best preschool, raised in the best high school, raised, goes to the best university, the world has to offer. He was on the fast track of opportunities and advantages. But in that moment, he looked and saw, and something broke inside Moses that would define the rest of his life. He intervenes and he kills the Egyptian. Turn with me very quickly in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. That's on page 1008 in the Black Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Hebrews 11, verse 24. It says this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. For he was looking to the reward. This is how we are to understand, you can turn back to Exodus, this is how we are to understand what happens in these verses with Moses. And this is how we are to understand his action. He looked at his life full of everything he could possibly ever want. And he said, vanity. Like what Psalm 90 teaches us. Vanity. And he said, I would rather be mistreated with God's people. I will forfeit all my privileges. I will forfeit all my power in order to identify with what the world considers ugly disreputable, backward, cringeworthy, these people of God. Now, certainly there are these trials revealed his weaknesses also. I mean, it's very clear that he's arrogant, he's impatient, he's willing to commit murder, he's prideful. Nevertheless, it shows what he trusted Moses made up his mind to suffer for God's people for the sake of Christ. He carefully evaluated, and in some way, with the limited understanding that he had of the promises of God, he looked forward to those promises and trusted in them and responded accordingly. And so I asked some of you, are you willing to forfeit your privileges and your power, your comfort, and your convenience 
for the people of God. To identify with the people of God. I mean, it's been open season on Christians in our culture. Churches remained open during the pandemic, and then pastors we hear get arrested for keeping their churches open. They're fined. They're like this fly in this ointment or something. And look what they believe about the Bible and about what it says about men and women. And, and our culture looks on and they just cluck their tongues, mock their beliefs. And we are tempted to go along to get along. To say, ah, well, you know, that's not me. You know, don't, you know I'm not an evangelical. I'm an ex-evangelical. I'm not a Christian. I'm a Jesus follower. Do you speak up to identify with God's people? I know those are delicate and tricky situations. I know not everything's black and white. But I simply ask you, have you ever felt the temptation to forsake God's people out of, the, out of self-preservation? Even within the local church, do you forsake potentially messy relationships with brothers and sisters for your own physical safety or your own mental safety. In our world, it will likely cost you something to identify as Christian. And if in your life, your main goal in life is to be well-liked, then I bid you goodbye because you will not remain a Christian for long. Because the day of testing will come if it hasn't already. And your allegiances will be exposed your allegiances will be exposed, so settle it in your hearts today that Christ is worth it. Second, God refines us through trials. I'm going to speed up a little bit here. In verses 16 through 22, Moses is at a well in Midian when daughters of a Midianite priest kind of come to draw water, and apparently there's these other shepherds there that kind of bully them out of the way. It's, it's a common occurrence, so much so that the father is even shocked in the, in, in the later verse to, to, to say, hey, you know, why are you back so early? And it says in verse 17 that Moses stood up, saved them, and watered their flat, flock. And Ruel, the, the priest, hears about this and invites Moses over for dinner. And you might be more familiar with the priest's other name, uh, which shows up in the next chapter, which is Jethro, Jethro. And so he also has another name, Jether, and there's like, he is just a man of many names. You know, Ruel is probably his last name, Jethro is first. The fact that he is a priest, I, I think, it, it, it does not mean that he was teaching or educating or training Moses while he was in Midian. Um, it seems doubtful that Ruel actually was a monotheist. It doesn't, in Exodus 18, it seems to, that is the time when he becomes a monotheist. So I, I doubt very much that he directed Moses to the one true God. But there's, this was some dinner because Moses sat down and whatever they ate, I don't know what happens, but he leaves with a wife. And he gets Zipporah. Now, later in Mosaic Law, there will be the statute against mixed marriages between Israelites and non-Israelites. And that specific command was about the people in the land which they came to inherit because they didn't want idolatry that would inevitably come from those mixed marriages. So this is, I think, a different situation. It's not in the land, so it seems that Moses is not in violation of the law that he will later set down. 
But the point here is that Moses is making a home for himself. He gets married, and he builds a home. He has a, a son. And in verse 22, Moses names him. He says, Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, in these verses, we see some of the best qualities of Moses. His flight from Egypt has not dulled his sense of injustice and desiring to right wrongs. Uh, Again, he's quick to act against oppression, even when the odds are stacked against him. I mean, he's physically strong. I mean, he wards off all these shepherds, and then he does the work what would normally take seven women to do. Moses doesn't seek any type of personal reward for what he's doing. I mean, Moses is a superhero. Uh, But in many ways, it also shows Moses in these verses to be a broken man. He's buried his ambitions that previously motivated him. He sees himself as a sojourner. He's come somewhat to an end to himself as, as he names his son Gershom. He's accepted his failure and turned to a life of shepherding. And he would be, Acts tells us, in Midian for another 40 years. So he's 80 years old before he is called to the burning bush. You see, when we first meet Moses, he's made of all the right stuff. We would think so. He's on the verge of greatness. I mean, he straddles this line, right, between intimate knowledge of the Egyptian culture and personal connection with the Hebrews. He's poised to lead Israel out of Egypt. He's resolute and resourceful and compassionate and zealous. He has all the instincts of a deliverer. He even saw himself that way. In Acts 7.25, it details out what happened here, and it says he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand when he murders this, when he murders this Egyptian. He supposed that he was to be the deliverer. He thought he was, raised, he was going to start an uprising. In other words, he thought that what he did would rally the people and that he wasn't there to just free off one taskmaster, but he was saying, we're going to throw off, come together and throw off all our taskmasters. He was ready to be their redeemer. But what happened? He went from having it all to living his life on the run in the desert wilderness. He's a failure as a deliverer of his people. He is a failure as a citizen of Egypt. He's unwelcome in either of the nations he might have called his own. He's a wanted man living basically in just obscurity, alone from all his origins, among people of a different religion. He's essentially washed up. It seems that all of Moses' providential training has been for nothing. I mean, his first-class education, wasted, gone. What a waste. What a waste. Wasn't Moses marvelously spared by the Nile? But didn't he get miraculously brought into Pharaoh's household? I mean, now nothing? We we feel like the disciples did with Jesus who said, why this waste? But while Moses had the instincts of a deliverer, he lacked the character of a deliverer. He lacked patience. He lacked wisdom. He lacked theological training, which he would get in chapter 3. And above all, he was proud. He thought he was going to be the self-appointed savior. I'm going to do it by my hand. And it took 40 years of being in Midian for him to learn. No, not by your hand, Moses. 
so that Moses could finally be God's instrument. And God can bring us through trials and periods of seemingly wasted time to sanctify us, to refine us, because none of it is a waste in the, in the plan of the Almighty. Think of what Moses gained. While God was getting Moses out of Egypt, he was also getting Egypt out of Moses. Moses learned not to rely on Egyptian privilege. He learned to not rely on Egyptian culture. Without the long exile in Midian, Moses would not have experienced what it meant to be an exile in foreign land. He learned perhaps that not Egypt, not even his people, not even the wilderness was his home, that in the longing of his heart, that there was a better country, a heavenly one. And Moses learned humility. He learned to be a shepherd. Like a wild stallion that is useless because he hasn't been broken, all of Moses' strength could not be used until he was broken. Moses needed to be humble. Beloved, our trials are never wasted. Seeming delays are never a waste. God uses us because of our weakness. He loves to choose the weak, the one without position or reputation, the foolish, so that Jesus, so that God would get the glory. You know, some of us love efficiency. I love efficiency. Moms love efficiency. I mean, it's like you're homeschooling, you're balancing your children's needs, you're doing ministry, but oftentimes life just doesn't line up. You get home an hour late. Uh, You miss that appointment. You hit every red light on your way to church. And you can be frustrated sometimes even to the point of tears. You seem to be such a failure that day, accomplishing nothing on your to-do list, but God's priorities totally succeeded. He wanted you to slow down because he didn't want you to hit that person that was going to cross the sidewalk. I don't know. He wanted to keep you from making a bad decision at that appointment. He wanted to grow your faith in his sovereign wisdom and sovereignty. John Piper writes, uh, frustrating human efficiency is one of God's primary means of sanctifying grace. In other words, God refines us through trials. Some of you are in your Midian right now. You're wondering, how long, O Lord? Why this waste? But God doesn't waste our time. He's up to more than we know. He doesn't work on your timetable. But if you belong to him, you can be sure that he is working for you. Because the people whom God uses most are the ones he puts through the wilderness first. It was the same for our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Think about that with me. Like Moses, Jesus would leave his privileged position as son of a king to identify with his people. Like Moses, Jesus would be rejected by his own people. And like Moses, Jesus was trained in the wilderness, not because he was proud, not because he needed any refining, but so that he could be like us. 
He learned suffering so that he could identify with the flock that he would shepherd. Our great sympathetic high priest took weakness upon himself. He did not exercise power and authority, but submitted himself to the will of the Father, submitted himself to the cross, and in weakness he took on himself the punishment of the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. That he might save many. If the Son of Man went through such trials, will we not also, when, as we follow our Lord? God reveals and God refines. And third, very quickly, and God remembers us in our trials in verses 23 through 25. While all this was happening, Moses flight to Midian. He gets married. He, has, he stays for 40 years. God was aware of the plight of his people. Look there in those verses. Time had brought no relief. Uh, a political change brought no improvement. New Pharaoh, same problems. And Israel cried out. Now, interestingly, it does not tell us that they cry out to God. Again, the people of Israel likely know very little about the one true God. They have some things, some things that were passed down to them for 400 years. It's in Exodus that he will make his name known. However, they are earnestly crying out for help, and they're crying out, somebody, anybody, please help. And God was listening. And they weren't particularly crying out for God to keep his promises, but God remembered. God remembered his promises. And we see in verse 24 some of the most stunning and beautiful and remarkable verbs about God. God heard. God remembered, God saw, God knew. Now, the word remember does not mean that God forgot as if he was like, hey, you know, where are my keys? Where did I put my keys? You know, God is omniscient. The text isn't telling us that God is typically deaf or that he's typically forgetful or typically blind and typically unknowing. When the Bible speaks of God remembering, it means that he is taking deliberate action on what is recalled. So he's acting towards someone because of his previous commitment. The implication of that is that God saves his people not because he dislikes slavery, but because of his prior covenant with his people. Even if they had not cried out, even if Goshen was like a holiday in Hawaii, God still would have delivered his people. He cannot but be faithful to his covenant. And the emphasis then is that God is always at work, always keeps his promise, and God is never late. He's always on time. God remembers, he knows for 400 years the stage looked blank, dark, empty, hopeless, pointless. But here is what we know. God saw, God heard, God remembered, God knew. And he has been working behind the scenes all along. Great is thy faithfulness. He hasn't been absent. He hasn't been gone. And all this time, he is preparing for his people a savior. I don't know what suffering you're going through, beloved. Friends, I don't know what you're going through right now or how long it will last. 
I don't know all that God is doing or why he hasn't given you that relief that you've been pleading for for so long. But I do know this. God is revealing and he is refining. And most of all, he remembers. He does. He remembers. You are not forgotten. And I would add that even now, he's preparing to send us the Savior. Church, no matter how long our trials may last, there will come a time when God will fully and restore all his promises that he has made. God has fixed that time, and he's right on schedule. And in the fullness of time, his son will return. The Savior will return. And then there will be no more crying. And then there will be no more, pe- no more, no more pain, no more grief. No more tears. No more pain. Let us put our hope there that God is still at work. God is still faithful. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the life of Moses in Exodus and how his life points us to this greater Savior, greater Deliverer and Redeemer that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those this morning that are suffering and and are feeling that there are all sorts of setbacks in their life. And they're here this morning, perhaps not even knowing you. And they're wondering, how did I get here? And And they're crying out for something, someone, some help. And Lord, you hear. And you promise to hear those who will turn to Jesus and repent of their sins and place their trust in you. And we pray that as a church, that we would be a people always looking to the hope of Christ. That we would say to ourselves, why are we cast down, oh my soul? That we would never, even in the deepest times of anguish and difficulty that we could whisper God you are faithful and we can trust you pray this in Jesus name Amen